everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume in the post-pandemic period, uh, God willing, September of 2021 in New York which we're very excited about. Anybody watching, we'd love to have you there. But our goal on these talks and at those conferences is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And there's no bigger idea, we think, uh, shaping the future than the idea of longevity and just the amazing advances that we've seen in life sciences over the last several years. So we're excited, very excited today to welcome Jim Mellon to SALT Talks. Uh, Jim is a British entrepreneur and investor with a wide range of interests. Through his private investment company, Burn Bray Group, he has substantial real estate holdings in Germany and the Isle of Man, as well as holdings in private and public companies. Jim's investment philosophy is underpinned by his ability to recognize emerging trends that give rise to new industries or major shifts in markets. This includes the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, as foreseen in his first book that he co-authored. It's called Wake Up and subsequently uh, in the new science and technologies detailed in Cracking the Code, the great book by Walter Isaacson, and Fast Forward. Uh, more recently, Jim has established himself as a leader in the nascent field of aging research and longevity. His groundwork into the field is summarized in the book Juvenescence, which he also co-authored. Uh, Jim sits on the board of trustees of the Buck Institute for Research in Aging and the American Federation for Aging Research. He's also a trustee of Biogerontology Research Foundation and the Lifeboat Foundation as an honorary fellow at Oriel College at the University of Oxford and sits on the advisory board of the Milken Institute's Center for the Future of Aging. We're great friends with the team over there at Milken, but I understand that AJ spent some time at Cambridge. I know you're an Oxford guy, Jim. Don't want to create any early tension here in the SALT talk. But, you know, if, if you guys start butting heads, I'll jump in and, and be the peacemaker. But hosting today's talk, returning to SALT Talks, is AJ Scaramucci, who is the founder and managing director of the SALT Fund, which is an early stage venture fund that we launched building on the SALT ecosystem and making investments primarily in the life sciences, biotechnology area. AJ can talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but with, without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over uh, to AJ for the interview. Jim, Jim, welcome. So, so lovely to see you. You know, I'd love to start this interview way, turning back the clock way back to the Oxford days, actually, where you were studying politics, philosophy, economics. Take me into the mind of, of Jim at that time. What were you thinking? What were your aspirations? How were you imagining your career unfolding? Let's start there. Uh, well, thanks, AJ, and thanks, John. It's really great to be on this uh, program. Um, honestly, um, probably like you, I went to university very young. Uh, I was 17 and I graduated when I was 20. Uh, and the only thought I have was passing the exams, <laughs> which were more difficult than I expected. And, um, also getting a job and, or I had a wonderful time at Oxford. I have close links with Oxford as I'm sure. And I know you have with Cambridge. Um, and I'm deeply grateful for all the connections and all the opportunities that it afforded me. Um, but the most important thing really was to get a job. And, and so at the end of my uh, time at Oxford, they had something, I'm sure you have the same, it's called a milk rand when the employers come around and they 
interview people. And it's the usual lot of investment banks and the uh, odd array of companies. Uh, and I was offered three or four jobs. Uh, one was with a company called Clark Shoes. I, I think they even sell their shoes in the US. Um, and But they've been through several bankruptcies. I'm very glad I didn't go there. Another one was with a, a well-known investment banking company. And I'm glad I didn't go there either. Um, and the last one was with, uh, well, the, the one that I was considering uh, most seriously was with a company that offered me a job in Hong Kong. And it was in fund management. And I didn't know what fund management was. I didn't know what a bond was, even though I had studied economics. And I didn't know what a stock really was. And so, but I took that job because it was in Hong Kong and I wanted to leave the country, which I think is a great thing for anyone. I think if you're living in the US or the UK or anywhere, if you can go and travel the world, what a, what a great opportunity. So I went to Hong Kong. I was This is a long, long time ago, way before your time. I was paid £5,000 a year. And then uh, uh, the, the company was really growing quickly. It was called GT Management. It's now known as LGT or Liechtenstein Global Trust, a very big uh, fund management company. And uh, they sent me to San Francisco where they were opening an office. And uh, so I was able to um, to be at the beginning of the big tech boom in the mid 1980s in, in the United States. And I can tell you this now, that I think I'm the only person ever to have sat in a commercial aircraft going from Palm Springs to San Francisco. And in front of me was Steve Jobs and Bill Gates together talking in a friendly fashion wow. on the flight the whole way. Uh, and, wow. you know, we all think of them as being great rivals and, you know, never speaking to each other, but they were there. They were in front of me. And if I'd had uh, the guts that I have now, I would have gone and talked to them. Okay. And my life might have been completely different. Wow. Wow. That, that's, that's an amazing story. So, and, and Jim, as you've, as you've uh, kind of entered into your investment career and, and have cultured your craft, we're curious to know how have you developed that investment philosophy? What are what are some of the heuristics you use in making decisions? And then also, what are some times in your career where you've uh, kind of been challenged, or you've you've seen you, you know there there was there was an up or down that you uh, had to had to manage or deal with? Yeah, I, I, you know, you're the first person ever that I've spoken to who's used the word heuristics, which is exactly the right word. So my uh, condensed motto, uh, and will be the subject of my next book, is curiosity, adaptability, and application. Curiosity is where you need um, heuristics. You know, people like us read a lot, regard that as being the job that we have uh, to try and pick up uh, the little sense that we need to understand where the next opportunity uh, is, rather than you know, invest in the status quo, employ heuristics. And, and those heuristics are honed and developed over time and experience. I don't think you're born with them. I think it's just a question of uh, really working at it. Uh, and so most of my morning is taken up with uh, reading and reading widely on, on any subject at all. Um, and then, you know, adaptability is particularly important now where the world is changing so quickly in a technological sense. Young people are going to have to do multiple careers. We all know that. Uh, so they have to be adaptable. You know, in, in my time, you probably went into a job and that was it. And uh, I know lots of people who've done of my generation who've, who've done that, and some successfully, um, some unhappily. Um, 
And then the last thing is application. And we all know that unless you're one of the two geniuses sitting in front of me on the Palm Springs flight uh, or, you know, Zuckerberg or, you know, one of these very, very few people, Jack Ma, uh, that you have to work hard at it. You know, you don't, success is something that doesn't fall in your lap. And so uh, curiosity, adaptability, application have been my uh, watchwords all, well, really throughout um, my career. And uh, and I've kind of ch- navigated. And you asked me about, you know, difficult times. Wow, there have been plenty of difficult times. I mean, I'll give you an example. We were in, in the, on the subject of curiosity, I was reading, and because then the internet wasn't around. In 1994, I was reading about Russia privatizing its um, industries and uh, doing it by way of distribution of vouchers to every adult in the in the federation the, uh, and those vouchers were for sale and foreigners could buy those vouchers and so myself and my colleague Jane Sutcliffe got on a plane it was a rather complicated uh, way of getting there but we eventually ended up in Moscow we ended up with two million dollars in cash bodyguards all that sort of stuff and we bought uh, $2 million worth of vouchers at the vegetable market in Moscow uh, to convert into uh, shares at the auction that was taking place of every single business, ranging from the hairdresser to the oil and gas companies in Russia. And um, it was a very successful investment. And within a year or two, we had billions of dollars invested in the former Soviet Union. Now, that was great. And uh, in 1997, we made a very large amount of money. But in 1998, uh, Russia defaulted on its debts. Its currency was heavily devalued. And I remember getting a call from a former colleague of mine at Oriel College, Oxford, who was then the treasurer of Morgan Stanley, asking for a margin call of $40 million. Now, $40 million in 1998 was a lot of money. That wasn't my personal margin call. It was the company's margin call. We only just scraped that. We got the $40 million, but wow, you know, to me, it represented almost uh, 1998. It wasn't a lifetime, but it was a a big chunk of uh, work and it was almost about to go down the tube. So you have to be aware of what might blindside you in either direction. Uh, You know, when we all know that when you're riding high, it's the time when it's most likely you're going to have a fall. So I'm, I'm very cautious these days about everything that I do. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, there's, uh, we, when we were doing some, some research on your investment history, and we, there's such a, a broad range uh, from real estate and you know, even public markets, commodities, uranium for, for a time. You know, we, we actually had to, some, some questions from our community around uranium. Uh, there's there's a, sort of an interesting dynamics at play as an emergent byproduct of, of COVID. Uh, there's been sort of supply shocks. Uh, and you know, a decade ago uh, or more, when you when you were you were involved, uh, there were some similar uh, kind of. Uh, there was a similar environment. I'm curious: is this something you're you're kind of keeping track on, have an opinion on, uh, in, in any way? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, basically, uh, when I got involved in uranium, I, it was a serendipitous moment because I have a friend who's a business partner. And he happened to have a potential uranium deposit in Namibia. We were in my pub in London, uh, where a lot of good ideas uh, happen. And uh, I'm, you're, you're both very welcome <laughs> to come into a pub with me in London if you want. And um, 
we each put in $50,000 into this prospect. And within two years, it was sold for $2.5 billion in cash. Uh, now, that was because uranium, obviously representing nuclear power, was the interregnum between fossil fuels and renewable energy. And the reason that that mine has never gone into production is because the price of uranium, which had gone from $20 to $140 a pound, collapsed post Fukushima. And uh, the Germans also shut down their uranium. But today, and it's interesting you should mention that, I'm, I don't have a uranium uh, prospect, but I've invested in, in Cameco as an example, um, because I do think that uh, nuclear is going to have its day again. That we just can't move straight from fossil fuels to renewables uh, with certainty and without huge costs, without putting nuclear, which is a clean energy, somewhere in between. And the Chinese are building lots of uh, uh, nuclear power stations. I, I think that even in the UK, we're building two or three. I guess in the US, you'll be building some as well. So it's a, it's, I think it's a good one to invest in at the moment. Fascinating. Yeah, and, and so Jim, I mean, parlaying a, a bit, I mean, you're, what's so fascinating uh, about you and your background is you, you really put your, put your money where your mouth is and you have a really strong conviction in certain vectors, certain megatrends. And the two more recently is the one of, of aging as the fundamental indication, longevity, uh, addressing the nine hallmarks, et cetera. Uh, switching the paradigm to preventative as opposed to reactive forms of medicine and therapeutics. And then on the food and ag front, right, pivoting into a world where cellular agriculture, synthetic biology, and fermentation are the status quo, and traditional agriculture goes to the wayside. And I'd love to understand, you know, as you were developing that, that mental model, uh, both in writing and then also manifesting in a company today, Juvenescence, and it, and, and, and another one in the food and ag space, agronomics. How did you walk us through that, that process as well as uh, give us a sense for, for why? Like what, why, why, were those, why are those two things uh, so compelling and interesting to you? Okay, so I've got two wonderful biotech partners. We've uh, created a number of biotech companies and we've invested in biotech for the last 15 years. One is Deck Dugan, who was formerly the head of drug research at, um, at Pfizer, and the other is Greg Bailey, who's a well-known funder of uh, biotech companies. And uh, Greg and I were talking, uh, he more about the, you know, how to live longer with the technologies that were then available, which is basically exercise, you know, reducing harmful inputs into your body, uh, de-stressing, et cetera and me more along the lines that, well, the science behind aging is catching up with the aspiration of us all to live at least healthier in the, towards the end of our lives, um, if not longer. And so having created a number of biotech companies, a couple of which are listed in the United States, we decided to create Juvenescence. And Juvenescence is an interesting uh, company because we don't know exactly what's going to modify aging, but we know that something's going to modify aging. So we've uh, created about 20 bets, if you want to put it that way, across uh, multiple projects uh, to where we only need one or two to work. And the first goal is to compress the period of what's called morbidity at the end of life. So that's 
having a dread disease post the age of about 70, which almost everyone does, you know, so it could be osteoarthritis or it could be cancer or diabetes or whatever it is, and trying to reduce the impact of that, uh, given that people are living longer, even, you know, in the pandemic period, the life expectancy generally is going up around the world. Uh, and then ultimately trying to modify aging so we can slow or reverse it, or even, I mean, this is the goal of some people like Eric Verdon, for instance, or Aubrey de Grey, of halting it. And uh, so the way that I, I create these uh, opportunities is to write a book. And I can tell you that if you write a book, you get access to people who otherwise wouldn't talk to you. So I drove around the US three and a half years ago, and um, the, which is, by the way, was a wonderful experience. I mean, it's just such an incredible country. And uh, interviewed all the key opinion leaders that I could find. And um, uh, they speak to you because they're gonna be in a book. And then Juvenescence became the template for our, for our company, which has now raised about $250 million of equity capital and is um, in the process, well, will be public uh, sometime this year. And, um, where we have some exciting stuff. We have a consumer facing division that now has a product on the market, which comes, and I know you're very close to uh, Dr. Eric Verdon. Um, it comes out of his lab in the Buck Institute. Uh, it's a oh, ketone ester called Metabolic Switch. It's on right. sale in the United States. Right. It's really a remarkable product. And then we have uh, an organ regeneration program through our subsidiary called Ligenesis, which is in phase two trials in sick patients to regrow livers in situ. Uh, so, you know, we're getting there, but we're feeling our way towards it. The longevity industry is at the dial-up phase of the internet equivalent. We're in the very early stage. And as far as agriculture is concerned, uh, the, I got really interested in cellular agriculture uh, because that comes out of biotech processes, using bioreactors, media, growth factors, et cetera, to create replicas of meat and um, fish and, and materials. And so that's why we got involved in that. And now we're the biggest investors in the world in this area. Now that sounds like a major boast, but I can tell you it's a bit like being an admiral in the Swiss Navy. It's still a very small sector. So, uh, so AJ, um, you know, I think the two are very linked. They're linked to sustainability. They're linked to the need to reduce uh, emissions and the need to improve our human health and in so many ways and uh, so long last at the end of maybe not the end of my career but the tail end of a uh, long career i am making i hope an impact that's positive for everyone yeah yeah and, and three and a half years ago when you came to the u.s in that exploratory mindset speaking with people like aubrey or eric at, at, at the buck institute of aging what were some big stand, standout takeaways for you when you when you look back at that experience what, what surprised you uh what what was unknown to you how did how did how did that experience refine your your heuristic perhaps and sort of manifest what became juvenescence yeah so uh i think it was basically a confluence of um i mean it was a happy coincidence that you know aubrey Near Barzilai is another great example. David Sinclair, uh, Eric, um, I've been working on this for literally decades. And, 
you know, because the elixir of youth has been chased by mankind for millennia without success, in some ways it was always regarded as the realm of crackpots and, uh, you know, almost religious cult type people. And so, but 20 years ago, the human, un the human genome was, uh, unveiled. It was unveiled as a map which couldn't be well read and as time has gone on and computer power has got greater and there's been great uh, scientific collaboration across the internet, the unveiling of that uh, map has become a reading of that map and we now know, or at least the scientists know about the, some of the key pathways at least that influence aging. They also know that we are not destined or pre-programmed to die at a specific age and they know that in at least uh, mammalian and uh, species that it is possible to manipulate key pathways to uh, keep uh, mammals and ourselves uh, living longer. And what really struck me was the work that was done in some, you know, compounds that are widely available, um, but for different purposes. Like a very good example is metformin, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Uh, which is effectively a wonder drug and which Nia Barzlai has been trying to get uh, funding for his trial for, for a long time. Uh, but, you know, as far as I can see, almost every single person in the longevity industry is taking metformin on a daily basis. Um, and Nia thinks it will add six to eight years uh, to lifespan. And I think Nia is a, a wonderful, wonderful person. Uh, so what really impressed me was the 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 First of all, the collaboration of people in the longevity industry, positive collaboration, which is so great. And, you know, it's not a competitive landscape. There's, if anything works in this field, then it's going to be the biggest industry on the planet because there isn't very, there aren't many people who don't want to live longer. Even my dad, who's 92, will be signed up for all the, uh, all the drugs if they work, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, so that, that was one thing. The second was the, the fervor and the the, the the years and years and years of grinding work that people at Aubrey, Eric, have been doing to advance the cause. And I just felt that, you know, it was an inclusive family and I wanted to be part of it. And I feel that I am now part of it. And I'm very, very grateful uh, to, to have been included in that, even though I'm not a scientist. But I understand enough to know that we can and will make an impact. And I also make the assertion today that, within 30 years, average lifespan will be, at birth, will be somewhere between 120 and 130 years. Uh, I mean, absolutely possible. And it, it is a fact, with or without new technology, but with new technology being an even bigger figure, that by 2100, uh, there will be at least 100 million people of 100 years old plus on the planet. And that's up from half a million in 1990. So, you know, the, the progress is incredible. Yeah. And being on the front lines and, and making those bets that you made at, at Juvenescence, what do you, I know these things are malleable and elastic and will change, et cetera, but which one of these, is it, is it the NAD boosting? Is it synolytics? Is it, you know, something in the computational drug discovery or wind pathway? Like, on the front lines today, if you, I know you've, you've created a portfolio approach, but when you're speaking with the research scientists uh, downstream, what, what today feels like the most promising uh, mechanism that can unlock 
the most net years of both health span and lifespan. Yeah, I think it's, uh, there's no polypharma, sure. I mean, it is a polypharma approach. There's no single pill that we're gonna be able to take that will keep us alive for another 30 years, at least not now. Um, and uh, what I'm very excited about is uh, regenerative medicine. Uh, you know, effectively that the image of the class, you've seen this before, a classic car that's restored uh, to uh, as is as was state. Uh, we are very keen on trying to find ways in which uh, organs that are failing can be regenerated uh, in vivo, and that's a major push for us. And I think that we we're getting close to that actually working. And the fact that the FDA has allowed lyogenesis to go into sick patients uh, using. Uh, lymph nodes as ectopic bioreactors seeded with um, uh, with hepatic cells to uh, basically regrow liver tissue uh, to take over the burden of a failing liver um, is is a very big positive. Um, but that platform can be used to regrow the thymus where your T cells are produced, regrow the pancreas, uh, ultimately regrow the kidney or, uh, as well. And the big issue with um, transplants is that, first of all, there aren't enough uh, organs out there to be transplanted, uh, particularly in livers. Secondly, it's a very expensive and very long uh, operation. In the US, to have a liver transplant is $800,000, and it's about a 15-hour operation. And the third is that you uh, need immunosuppressants uh, for the rest of your life. And just imagine that you'd had a transplant and you're on heavy immunosuppression and, and the COVID comes along. I mean, you're not even allowed to see anyone, uh, you know, the whole period of COVID because the slightest infection will take you away. So what we're trying to do is find a way of amalgamating science. And so our company, Ajax, um, has got a stem cell line called HLAG, which is a maternal stem, stem cell line that means that the mother doesn't reject the fetus. And we're trying to use that along with lyogenesis technique, which is, by the way, only about $130,000 compared to the $800,000 for a transplant. Plus it's an inpatient, uh, sorry, an outpatient procedure as opposed to an inpatient procedure yeah. and use that to avoid uh, the need for immunosuppression. So the opportunity in regenerative medicine, I think is number one in my list of, of what we can do. Um, in terms of... Uh, you know, what drugs you might want to take. I think that analogs or tweaks of metformin or rapamycin will are absolutely something that we're seriously interested in. Um, senolytics have so far been disappointing, as you well know, and Unity failed in its first trial. It's now engaged in a, a second phase three for uh, age-related macular degeneration. I hope and I pray that it works because on paper, senolytics should be working, but so far they're not. But as I said earlier, we don't know exactly what's going to work, but we know something's going to work. Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's super comprehensive. Yeah, I mean, I think there there is something for sure in this regenerative medicine realm, the cellular therapeutics realm, and whether it's placental-derived tissue as an example in the case of cellularity or trying to populate kidney or, or lung scaffolds with mesenchymal stem cells, you know, the work of Martin Rothblatt, et cetera, there's, there, there is a lot of converging um, areas that are you know, really showing showing early signs of promise. Uh, it's extremely exciting. So you know, today, so today, Jim, for yourself, because people are going to want to know, you're taking metformin, 
are you taking some kind of NAD booster or what, what is the constellation of things that you do for yourself? Uh, given you, you have become a, a champion of, of longevity research. Well, they always say, AJ, that the best tailors are the ones that are worst dressed. Um, I, <laughs> I'm uh, taking, uh, I do, I've, I've actually started on metformin uh, because at the urging of uh, my colleagues um, and I'm not taking NAD boosters. I am uh, I'm now drinking the um, ketone ester from Juvenescence Metabolic Switch, which actually tastes absolutely horrible. But if, if you remember your mum giving you, um, you know, medicines and saying if it tastes bad, it's good for you. Uh, it's, it's the same. It's the same concept, I guess. Um, and I do feel better. Actually, I've been on it for about two weeks, and I feel better for that. Um, and uh, so. Uh, I'm not doing a lot other than I look exercise. I think given that we are not at the point yet where this stuff is in wide dispersal, uh, I think exercise is the most important thing and it can be anything, even yeah. walking, but doing, you know, a lot of steps every day. So I do a minimum of 15,000 steps a day, but don't look at me. I think my colleague, Greg, uh, takes it to extremes and I'm, I'm dead somewhere in the middle and I'm, I'm probably the slouch, um, who prefers to watch Netflix and follow all the advice that I could. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And, and you know, to parlay there, I mean, there's, there is, you know, an enormous uh, amount of capital, particularly in, in the age of COVID that has been coming down into pharma or mRNA research or, or what have you. And, you know, longevity really does seem to be like this secret hiding in plain sight, right? I mean, it, it really is, uh, as you said, you know, it's kind of like the dial up days, uh, and, and perhaps we will look back a decade or two and, and look back maybe on even this conversation and say, wow, this, this truly was the beginning. The question I have is, is how do we get more investors interested in longevity, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, institutions? What watershed moment do you feel needs to happen in order for that wave to really, really ignite from a capital perspective? Yeah, that, that's a brilliant question. I mean, I think that uh, the pandemic has done two things. One, it has shown up the need to build up immunoresilience in the elderly cohort, cohorts, because as in the United States, as in the UK, as in everywhere else, the average age of people dying of COVID is more or less at the average age of life expectancy. Uh, I mean, in the UK, it's actually one year ahead of average life expectancy. So older people who have reduced immune systems, uh, building up those immune systems, I think is gonna be really important. And any breakthrough there, and again, that's a major focus of us at Juvenescence, is going to both show the capability of extending um, life uh, and uh, also start garnering the money that is necessary to really propel this thing forward. I completely agree with you, AJ. This is a monumental industry in the making, but as yet, because there isn't anything that is, you know, you can put your hand on and say, this is really working, um, uh, it's not got the hype around, for instance, cannabis or sure. cryptocurrencies or anything, even though it deserves it to have yeah. a much, much bigger priority than, than those things. Um, yeah. But we're, we're not that far off the point. 
Um, you know, there are there are good companies in this field, uh, some of which you're very familiar with. You know, Peter Diamandis's companies, as an example, um, the David Sinclair's Life Biosciences, uh, and one or two of us will have something in the next one or two years that will be mind shattering and will propel huge amounts uh, into this field. We're not quite at the point. But on the other hand, we're not finding a great deal of resistance to people putting money into the concept. Sure. Um, and uh, although money raising is always difficult, as you know, we are, we're doing pretty well on that score. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm confident we'll get enough money to, to progress our programs. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you feel that uh, sort of recognizing aging as a disease or an indication uh, is, is sort of a, a linchpin in this? I mean, a lot of aging companies seem to uh, you know, they'll, they'll be pursuing aging or you know, one of the nine hallmarks as an example, but they have to masquerade as traditional pharmaceutical companies in pursuant of you know, X, Y, and Z oncology indication. And do you, do you feel, I mean, that is in the zeitgeist a bit. Do you feel like that is, that is of critical importance? Yeah, my colleague, Alex Shabaronkov, who I'm runs Insilico Medicine, which was our first investment in juvenescence, which is doing very well, um, is big on this. You know, getting aging recognized uh, by the WHO as a, a disease in itself. Uh, and I think he's been making, along with his uh, partners in this, uh, in this mission, some success. And it is important because, let's face it, um, apart from viral diseases or bacterial infections or some rare childhood diseases, uh, aging is the number one cause of disease. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the proliferation of disease as you get older is quite incredible. And um, so we need to look at aging as the fundamental cascade from which all the diseases of aging come. And I'm, I'm totally with you on, in that. I think that will be a big moment. Uh, and uh, we're working on that with uh, partners in the uh, other companies and other organizations uh, in the aging space to try and make that um, happen. But I have to take my hat off to Alex because I think he's the Making he's way. the main driver um, of this. But it's a very, very good and, and well-noted point that, you know, it, as soon as aging is recognized as a disease, then maybe we move forward. Now, I wouldn't say companies are necessarily imposters. What they are doing is they're navigating the FDA and the rules to find a commercial application because no company can hang around for 30 or 40 years and seeing if, you know, AJ lives uh, to 150 or hundred. Um, and well, it's a lot longer than 30 or 50 years. I know, but in my case, let's say, and um, they, uh, so they need to find some way of getting a drug that's or a therapy that's commercialized in the, in the near future. And we're, we're no different to that. You know, we're looking for near term commercial opportunities, which, then measured with biomarkers, and you talk about the hallmarks of aging, but measured with accurate biomarkers that are getting better and better, uh, allow scientists to see if there is actually an aging or anti-aging effect from the therapies that people are taking. Um, but uh, as you know, metformin is a prescription drug in the United States, but it's not here in Spain. And uh, I can go and buy it in the pharmacy. And uh, so it makes it slightly different for you guys in the U.S., yeah, so Jim, uh, you know, I kind of pivoting into your your new book, Moose Law, which you know, came out last year. Uh, you know, it seems like a, a similar story. You interviewed an enormous number of, of experts in the space of, of cellular agriculture and food and ag tech more broadly. 
Uh, and similarly, you're, you're making waves here uh, as an investor and as an entrepreneur. Love to learn you know, again on the front lines of this industry in, in, in particular. What are you seeing? What is what is what is promising? What is investable today that can see uh, you know some some rate of return? I mean, we've seen impossible and beyond, and even just and sort of the the plant uh, sort of protein alternatives start to really garner one market share, but two enterprise value. Cellular agriculture seems to be a bit more nascent. Uh, things like fermentation and synthetic biology maybe are a little even more ahead. I'm curious, how, as you map that landscape, what seems that it is within our grasp in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, well, um, you described it extremely well. I, I would say that, you know, rather like longevity has come into its own because of a single event, which was the unveiling of the human genome the rise of alternative proteins has come into its own uh, for three or four reasons. One is the desire to change the outcome in climate. It is a fact, and you know you can dispute the percentages, but about a fifth of noxious gases come from intensive farming. And it's more than any other form of human activity, including transport. So reducing intensive farming is a really good thing for the environment. Secondly, cutting down the rainforests, which everyone is justifiably upset about, is being done to grow soya beans, which then get fed to animals, which are very inefficient uh, converters of plant protein into meat. Uh, in the case of cows, it's about 25 to one. In chickens, it's somewhere between six to nine to one. Uh, that's highly wasteful and also it adds to further environmental damage. Thirdly, you've got the Indians and the Chinese demanding more and more animal protein and quite rightly, why shouldn't they eat uh, as they get richer, the same stuff as Americans or Europeans uh, do. But in so doing, what's happening is that you're putting unbearable strains on our environmental system and on potential human health. So 80, that's eight zero percent of antibiotics go into intensively farmed animals. Now, what that does is to create antibiotic resistance in human beings because we're, well, I don't because I don't eat meat, but the people are eating these uh, meats and they're becoming more and more antibiotic resistance. And, you know, one day uh, it could be, and I, I know Bill Gates has been banging on about this, but it could be that we just, the antibiotics don't work anymore. And if we got a bacterial pandemic rather than the viral pandemic we have now, where the whole world has been shut down, three million people have died, uh, we could be looking at a much, much worse situation. We could be looking at a black death. And it, you know, people say, oh no, that's not possible in the modern world. The black death was in the middle ages. Well, how was our response before vaccinations to this pandemic? It wasn't much better than it was in 1918 or 1920. So uh, we need to reduce the consumption of antibiotics and 80% of them go into intensively farmed animals. Now, you've also got the overfishing of the seas. I don't know if any of you have watched Sea Spiracy, but it's a harrowing tale. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, this is going to be a massive disruption and it's happening very quickly. You ask how many companies are investable. We think about 30 in the world of which we've invested in 14. Uh, and yeah, and none of those companies are public. 
but I would imagine that one or two of them will go public in the States. You mentioned Eat Just, possibly a SPAC, uh, Memphis Meats in the States, Blue Nalu, which is the leading uh, fish cell ag company, will go public. And of course, you rightly point out in plant-based meats, you've got Beyond and probably Impossible going public shortly, Live Kindly going public, and Oatly, the Swedish company um, making oat milk, will go public quite soon. 10 years ago, half a percent of the US market was alternative milks. Today, it's nudging on between 20 and 25%. The two biggest US milk producers have gone bust, Borden and Dean Foods. That's before the, you, you talked rightly about precision fermentation, before the precision fermentation companies come along, like Perfect Day or Legendary out of Berlin, and they produce absolute replicas of whey casein, making up milk, cheese, yogurt, etc., cetera, uh, without any dairy cows being involved. So I, I'll make these predictions. I'm, I'm sorry I'm banging on here, but I'm very passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. 10 years time, the dairy industry as it currently exists, where you think of cows walking in, being milked, their udders getting distended, their backs breaking after two or three years, and whereas they would normally live 20 to 25 years, miserable lives, that industry is gone, gone almost all around the world. And we'll be drinking the perfect days or the Oatly or whatever. Yeah. In terms of meat, 50% of the meat market will be either plant-based and everyone knows the brands, Meatless Farms, Corn, Impossible, Beyond, uh, and uh, or Cell Ag. And the reason that I fundamentally prefer Cell Ag is because there's IP around it. But it's a, it's a it's a moat that creates, in my opinion, more value. And so companies will be able to produce these foods in labs and basically on an industrial scale as the price comes down uh, will become more valuable than the plant-based foods. And they're probably better for human health. There'll be no contaminants, no bacteria, so the food, the shelf life will be longer. Um, in fish, there'll be no mercury microplastics, which are a disaster for fish at the moment, uh, no antibiotics, no hormones, um, et cetera. And the total addressable market for all these things, for dairy, for meat, for fish, is about $5 trillion, which is twice the size of the whole UK economy and about a quarter of the US economy. This is not a trivial market. You know, if Tesla is worth $800 billion on the back of electric vehicles, and these companies are worth peanuts by comparison. They are addressing a fundamentally bigger need. We don't all need to get into a car every day, but we all need to eat. Okay. So this is absolutely transformational. Yeah. And uh, this is alongside uh, longevity and juvenescence, my other main passion. And I, I don't need to do anything else in my life except focus on these two because, you know, it, they're both transformational. Wow. Wow, Jim. Yeah, I mean, we personally we we feel the exact same way. I mean, we have stood up a vehicle at Salt specifically to invest in programmable biology at the intersection of longevity and food and ag. And we are investors in companies like Shiru, which is mentioned in your book. I went to school school with Ryan at Perfect Day. We've been friends. For, oh, fantastic! Been friends for the last eight years. Been involved in that company since the beginning. Um, and you know. It really, it really is. Uh, it is happening, right? I mean, I think the the gating the gating function in in cellular ag 
really is the cost related to the recombinant proteins being fed during the culture expansion process. I'm curious, have you seen, have you seen uh, again on the front lines, some novel approaches to this that'll really kind of move the needle? I mean, Moose Law, I think is a great, a great analog or, or, or heuristic to, to think about this, uh, but do you feel it'll, it'll sort of just, just happen or what, what, what fundamental uh, breakthrough do you feel needs to happen to, to unlock this for, for humanity at large at scale? Yeah, um, so there are three. The reason I think that I call it griddle parity, that the cell ag products have the potential over time to be lower in price than conventionally farmed meat, in particular, or fish, is because their input ratios at scale, hence Moose Law, are lower. We think about two and a half to one compared to, as I mentioned earlier, 25 to one for a cow. Um, but you're absolutely right. The growth factors have to come down in price. Now, the proteins, the recombinant proteins, uh, are currently extremely expensive because they are derived from biotech processes. But we know that in biotech at scale, so for instance, insulin would be a good example, uh, the price comes down dramatically. And in, in the case of uh, insulin, it's about $4 a gram. And uh, we are pretty confident that those same transcriptions will happen in cell ag. Similarly, the bioreactors that are used at the moment are relatively small and they need to be scaled up. And so companies like Sartorius in Germany are working on scaling them up to enormous sizes so that you can produce at, you know, 100,000 people's protein from one single factory. Uh, and I believe that will happen in the next two or three years. Uh, and then uh, lastly, you've got the media or the um, the nutrients, and we know that they're coming down in price quite dramatically as well. So we're at a, it's an iterative process. I don't think there's going to be one single massive breakthrough that's going to be absolutely, I don't know, but I don't think it's going to be totally transformative. But I, I can tell you that if you graph the price of the initial burger unveiled by Mark Post in 2013 in London, uh, who's now uh, the chief scientific officer of Mosa Meat, cost about 300,000 US dollars and now is down to about $10. It's following the trajectory of Moore's law, Gordon Moore's original law vis-a-vis uh, -vis semiconductors. So it's only a matter of years before you get down to griddle parity and below. I'm absolutely confident that we're going to get there. I think the bigger roadblock is going to be, number one, the agro-Luddites, particularly in the United States, who um, uh, are you know representing cattle farmers and are very anti this stuff, and I can understand why they are, but in a way they should be embracing it because they might actually make some money out of it. Uh, and number two, the regulatory process, um, uh, and then third is of course consumer acceptance. Will people accept eating food that's made in a uh, industrial way? And I think that will happen. Yeah. Um, and I. To, to give you an illustration of that, I was reading about Louis Pasteur and pasteurized milk. And it it's amazing to me that pasteurization was a, around for a long time before it was used uh, mandatorily in the United States. And people were dying because they were drinking unpasteurized milk, which caused huge amounts of uh, uh, gastro problems uh, in, in, in the US. Uh, and uh, only when the science was proven to the satisfaction of the re then regulators was it made mandatory. 
But consumers embraced it straight away, even though it meant heating up the milk to 130 degrees Celsius and then cooling it straight away. Um, so it was a, you know, novel foods are easily embraced if they represent convenience, taste, texture, and price. And those are the four key factors sure. that will drive this industry. Sure. Sure. I think that's a really interesting uh, analog. And it, it leads me to my next question, which is the consequences of, of this stuff, both in longevity and in food and ag. I mean, do people really want to live forever if they had the option? Do you? Uh, or in the food and ag ecosystem, will, will people? I mean, uh, my, my gut is yes, they will accept cellular ag as a mainstay, but there's definitely going to be friction there. I'd love, love to hear uh, a little bit from you on, on the kind of downstream, second, third order consequences of, of these technological inevitabilities, if you would. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the consequences of uh, people living healthier for longer are. Uh, you know, incredible. Um, in some ways, you know, people do live routinely to 100, 110. Um, it's like adding another 12 hours to your day. Instead of yeah. waking up with 24 hours, you wake up with 36 hours. What are you going to do with that time? And that will be a big question for a lot of people. Uh, it obviously upends all sorts of financial products, you know, pensions, insurance, uh, government structures and all that sort of stuff. And, and there's not enough attention paid to that. So we do a longevity forum every year in London uh, with my collaborators, uh, including Professor Andrew Scott, who wrote The 100 Year Life, to try and educate people about, you know, what are what are the consequences of this? And by the way, it's an unstoppable train. It's, it's going to happen. Um, and um, the, uh, so, and, and in terms of agriculture, well, luckily, uh, there are two parts of agriculture. One is growing crops for human consumption, which is a very profitable business, generally speaking. Um, and uh, then there's also growing crops to put in animals and growing the animals themselves. Both of those hopefully will reduce in intensity. They have to reduce in intensity. Uh, but if farmers divert their attention to growing crops for humans, they can make much better margins than they currently do. And a lot of them are just living precariously, trying to grow animals and, and crops to put into animals. Uh, and uh, there is opportunities for farmers to do other stuff with their land, like, for instance, building houses. Since only 1% of the workforce in developed countries works in agriculture, it's not going to be highly disruptive. It's not going to be like the horse and cart being displaced by the motor car. This is, uh, it's going to be all the mines being, the miners all losing their jobs. <clears throat> this is a much lesser change. And the major part of agriculture is actually the processing, marketing, yeah. consumption, retailing of food. Uh, and that will stay the same. Definitely. Definitely. And Jim, and Jim, you know, uh, where can where can people find you, interact with you? Are you active on, on, on social media? How do, how do people keep up with, with your work? I know you're You've got these uh, recent books coming out, perhaps another one down, down the pipe, but give us a sense there. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and anyone can contact me on LinkedIn. I'm not on any of the other things because I think LinkedIn's the only one that's polite and uh, you know has a, a special purpose. Um, so I'm on there, contact me on that. And I'd be very happy to connect anyone to my colleagues if they want to talk directly to any of them. Um, and 
as far as the books are concerned, the profits uh, go to whatever. And, and the, in this case, the Moose Law, uh, all the profits go to the Good Food Institute, which is the leading advocacy group for trying to reduce intensive farming. I mean, my own motivation, by the way, AJ, on intensive farming is not to make money, but to reduce animal cruelty. And, um, you know, as a, I can see John's wearing his dog, uh, dog thing, and I'm sure you're a big animal lover as well, AJ, I'm sure you are. Uh, and uh, we just, you know, can't have any more of this. I mean, you know, Chickens in 1950 were one third the size of chickens today. The chickens today live an average of 23 days. Uh, the male chicks are shoved into basically they're butchered uh, when they uh, arrive in the world. Um, and cows, you know, live 28 months before they're slaughtered, and most of them never see the daylight until the day they are slaughtered. Uh, we know about fish. I mean, this is a uh, it's a cruel and horrible industry. And my motivation is to, sorry, is to reduce this as much as possible. Definitely. Definitely. With that, Jim, I mean, it's been such a pleasure to, to speak with you. Uh, we'd love to, to see you again on, on Salt Talks in the future and, and one of our events uh, in, in New York or Abu Dhabi, uh, Singapore, as, as the world opens up. Uh, but with that, I mean, John, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, Jim, we would obviously love to have you in New York in September, but Ibiza, uh, where you're stationed right now, is definitely not a bad move. So so I don't blame you if you decided just to kick your feet up on the beach and, and continue the great work you're doing, but we would love to see you. I, I would love to come. We're, we're longing to travel, actually, and uh, it would be super uh, to be included in one of your events. I really appreciate it. And uh, look, it's been an absolute pleasure, AJ and John. Thank you for having me. Yep. And thank you for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Jim Mellon of Juvenescence. Just a reminder, if you miss any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. Uh, we're, we're more active on social media than Jim. We're on Twitter at Salt Conference. That's not to say we don't get some, some hate messages every once in a while. They'll probably be talking about how, how I'm uh, you know, not dressed properly or, or wasted too much time in the introduction before we got to the good stuff with AJ and Jim. Get all kinds of you know, hateful messages on, on social media, but we try to keep our self-esteem in order and block it out. Um, but uh, also spread the word about these salt talks. We think these issues related to longevity, as we talked about, you know, the animal cruelty issue is obviously very important and also just helping people live healthier, longer lives, we think is a, a very noble mission and a great cause. So on behalf of AJ and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.